0: Amen. Thank you, Ivan. Thanks for doing that for us. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We've been in the middle of a series for the last few weeks, going through the the Sermon on the Mount, which uh, is a very famous portion of our scriptures uh, and very familiar to many of us. And so this morning we come uh, to my personal uh, favorite uh, text where Jesus begins to talk about anxiety. Really, it's a two-part deal from last week. And so we need to pick up right there uh, in Matthew 6, chapter chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Now uh, you'll see in your worship folder that I've printed it from the the ESV and then I also printed for you the message because I just find it to be really helpful in some of the nuances. And so we're going to read uh, together from the ESV. Uh, first and let's just let's let's just ponder what jesus has to say to us here uh, in this passage from matthew 6 jesus says therefore i tell you do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing look at the birds of the air they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them and are you not more valuable than they I would like to um I would like to just continue to read with you if you don't mind. And really it's its own exposition from Eugene Peterson's translation of the same passage, the message, uh because I just again I think it is so helpful to kind of get at the nuance and then we'll get into the, the exposition of this. But if you would just it's not on the screen, I don't believe. It is. Look at that. Good job, Terry. I doubted him. He got it up there for me. So just read along with it, in this with me as well, because I just just to get a second kind of viewpoint on this, if you decide for God living a life of God worship, it follows that you don 't fuss about what 's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There are far more there is far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, careless. In the care of God, and you count far more to him than birds. I love this. Has anyone, by fussing in front of the mirror, ever gotten taller? By so much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion. Do you think it makes that much difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never print or shop. But have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The ten best-dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. if God gives such attention to the appearance of the wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come when the time comes. Isn't that great? Now, what we've been saying in this series is we've been saying, from the very beginning, Jesus is talking about the church, and his theology of the church is that the church is a colony of heaven. Jesus calls us salt and light. He says that we are... The light of the world, a city set on a hill. The church is meant by Jesus to be the visible, tangible expression of what life looks like under God's reign. And as we live together, what he's saying is, in a very real way, we put heaven on display. That's our job description. That's our calling. We are a window to the world into a whole new way of living, not just a mirror that reflects back to the world its own priorities and values. So Edmund Clowney, who's a professor of theology, gets it right, I think. He says, the church is just strange. Now here's the way he puts it. He says, the favorite fantasy of science fiction is true of the church. Its members are aliens, even though they lack pointed ears. Their astral home is not another planet, however. It is God's own heaven. See, the kingdom of heaven, this is what Jesus has been describing for us, is unveiling, he's unveiling the kingdom in his teaching and in his earthly ministry. And what he's unveiling is something very different than what we're used to. It, it is, in many ways, upside down. It requires that you be converted to enter into it, he says. You have to be born again. You have to repent. You have to think beyond what you think is possible and begin to bring all of your life into alignment with the values and priorities and practices of the new reality that Jesus is bringing. And what we have said last week and what we'll say again this week is this is especially is especially true when it comes to money and material possessions. Now, you might remember, last week we saw Jesus warned us that it is impossible, in verses um, 22, 23, and 24, it is impossible to serve both God and man, and that inevitably you will be devoted to one. You will You will become consumed with one. Your heart will latch onto one, and the result will be is that you will despise the other. You'll think very little of it. You'll degrade it in its importance, either God or man. And I realize, I realize all of the question that sentence prompts. And I heard about all of the conversations that took place in community groups last Sunday. And uh, and I'm glad for that. And and unfortunately, I don't think I was very helpful. And, and probably that's because I'm still personally wrestling through the implications of Jesus' warning and his teaching. I mean, you know, here's the one I got the most. Is it sinful to have a savings account? I hope not because I have one. You know? How do we, how do we wrestle through these issues? And I, and I'm, I'm, so I'm really glad for the conversations. I mean, and the issue Jesus seems to be getting at is, is this, is how easy it is to begin to trust in money, and put our hope and our confidence in it, and to look to it for an identity and security. We said it, money and material possessions easily become God's. So he says, be on your guard. And I I want us to have the conversation. I mean, I want us to continue to wrestle with the hard teachings of Jesus, and to struggle toward faithfulness. And I think, I really think Jesus helps us in this passage make sense of the passage we read last week in two ways. He, He prompts two questions of us in this passage that I think really help us as we kind of try to go deeper into this reality, okay? So the two questions are just this, and so here's how community group leaders, if you need, you know, if your conversation wasn't finished and you want to go back and, to, and, and do this again, here are really the two questions I think he's asking. us. number one, what are you using your money for? What's the goal What's the goal of of your approach to money? And secondly, and this is probably the better one, is how does it affect you emotionally? How emotionally attached to it are you? What are you using it for? And how emotionally attached to it are you? See, so let's just, in our introduction, let's just for a few minutes walk through that. First, what are you using your money for? Jesus contrasts two different ways of living in this passage. Look down at verses 22 and... Or excuse me, that's not right. Look down at verses 32 and 33. Jesus says... Uh, in verse 22 that the Gentiles some translations if you have an older translation it probably says pagans Eugene Peterson says those who do not know God or the way God works So whichever you, it's it's a word that describes those who who aren't in a relationship with God So Jesus says the Gentiles or those who do not know the Lord spend their whole life seeking to provide food and clothing for themselves The message says they fuss and I love that they fuss over these things They run after them They seek them because they believe it's up to them to provide for themselves, but not us. You see, if you believe in Jesus, in verse 33, he says, don't seek to provide for yourself. That's God's job. You seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of the kingdom. You see, that helps me. I mean, that really helps me because, see, here here is the test. Here is how you test your attitude towards money. It's how you know whether or not you're serving God or money, like we talked about last week. It's just this. It's the why. It's not so much the what, it's not. It's the why, it's the heart motivation, it's the issue. That's the issue, it's the goal, it's what you're pursuing, it's what you're seeking. I mean, the issue isn't whether you have money, but why you feel like you need it, and what you're using it for. That's the issue Jesus is getting at. And here's what Jesus is saying, he's saying, in verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is invading the world and it's bringing a righteousness. And that word just means, the the kingdom of heaven is coming and it's straightening things out. It's healing human community. And the kingdom heaven is coming to earth. And what Jesus wants us to see is we can enter into it right now. And Jesus says you you should take all of your life, you should take your time and your talents and your treasures, and you should be plunging them, you should be investing them in that. He says, seek first the kingdom there, verse 33. In other words, make it your priority. Make it the very first consideration. Let it have the best of you. Do everything you have to to enter it and live in it and take it to the ends of the earth. And so, see, this is what we have to wrestle with. I mean, this question, in all of your working and toiling and saving and all of the drive with which you live, are you seeking a nice, safe, comfortable life for your family or are you seeking the kingdom? That's the question. That's how you know is your ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God is your ultimate desire to see the kingdom come Are you able to take your money and sacrificially give it away for the sake of the kingdom? That's what jesus wants to know You see if you love money, you won't be able to part with it You'll make it your identity and security You'll put your hope and confidence in it and you'll want to keep it all for yourself. And so if you're still unsure About your attachment to these things. There's a second test Jesus gives us in this passage to gauge our 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 love or our attachment to money and material possessions and that's just this and here's where here's where I just get completely personally exposed he asks how anxious are you how anxious are you about it if your life is full of anxiety it is a sign about you know about money it's a sign that you love it and you've put your trust in it and you're afraid of losing it and here's what Jesus wants us to see he says anxiety will keep you from seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness so we have to deal with it. 3 times. 3 times in this passage Jesus says do not be anxious. Now let me warn us of one thing before we move into looking at these the points in our outline and that is just this there I realize there are people in this room who who are suffering or have suffered with depression and anxiety that is beyond what we have time to talk about here. I don't want to make light of their struggles. There are no easy solutions to all that. I, you know, we, we just talked about this. You've got to be really careful with a sermon on anxiety because you, there are certain situations to which it applies and certain that it doesn't. But I don't want to give us an out either. This, you know, this isn't a sermon about anxiety. It's a sermon about how money affects us and how when we give our hearts to it and make it our functional savior, a lot of times the residue is that we feel anxiety and the anxiety reveals our idolatry and our unbelief. So that's what we've got to talk about this morning. Uh, if you look at your outline with me very quickly, there are three points there. There should be two um, as I wrestle with this. There's really just two things that I want to ask this morning, but it kind of comes in two parts at the beginning there, so we'll figure that out. But two things I want to talk about with you this morning from this passage in greater detail. And the first is, is where does anxiety come from? What does it expose? Where does it come from? And then, secondly, how do we overcome it so that we can seek first the kingdom? So, where does anxiety come from? What's it expose? What's it, what's it, how's it telling on our hearts? And then, when we learn that, secondly, how can we overcome it so that we can seek first the kingdom? Okay, so let's just start right here, uh, with this idea of little faith. Where does anxiety come from? I, I want to tell a little, a brief story. Uh, I came, to a place in my life a number of years ago where my life did not match my theology, where my faith, or excuse me, my life did not make sense of what I believed to be true about God. It was really, in many ways, a crisis of faith. Uh, And we were serving at a church in the city at the time, and, and, and Ashley and I decided to leave the church and give up a steady income and health insurance paid for by the church and all those things and to live by faith. And if you'd known me at the time, you would have known how impossibly hard it felt uh, because of my love for money and the lifestyle and the security that came with it, but we did it, and for four years, about four years, um, I traveled overseas and around the country and spoke at different places and trained pastors. Uh, we went through a four-year period of time where we didn't buy any new clothes or eat out very much, where, believe it or not, Ashley cut my hair and cut the boy's hair, uh, which she's thankful is now no longer the case, and I am too, quite honestly. <laughs> she learned a lot over, the, over those four years, but... It was kind of rough at the beginning. Uh, somehow, we made it work, but it was hard because of the constant anxiety that I felt about our, our financial situation, quite honestly. And, and it really aggravated at times for a number of different issues. And I, I just, I look back and I think I almost missed out on it uh, because of my anxiety. And you see, this passage, the reason I, I just tell that little brief but is this passage was the passage that motivated the change in our lives, and that really sustained me personally through that, that four or five year time. Um, see, it was a work that God had to do in me, that he, because he loved me, forced me to confront my fear and my worry because he knew that lurking behind the anxiety and the fear and the worry that I lived with was something far more dangerous. He knew I had a little faith. And that is exactly what Jesus accuses all of us of in this passage. If you look at verse 30, really the accusation comes down to this. He says, oh, you of little faith. In other words, what he's saying is if you're full of anxiety about money, you have a little faith. In other words, you're living in unbelief. And it's interesting, four more times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus offers the same rebuke to his disciples. The first time when when he calms the storm, you remember they're in the boat and the winds and the waves are raging, and he says, oh, you of little faith. The second time... He says it to Peter as Peter's walking out on the water to meet him as Jesus comes walking on the water. The third time is a time where they don't have bread and Jesus asks them a question about bread and they start to panic that they don't have what they need and he's hoping you know, for things and they're not going to be able to meet his expectations. And the fourth time is a time when they are trying to cast out a demon from a, a person and they can't seem to do it. And in each case, here's what happens. The disciples were confronted with a difficult circumstance. A raging storm threatening to destroy the boat. You know, a problem they couldn't solve, a need they could not take care of on their own. And and here's the thing, and each time they responded with anxiety. They got full of fear and started to despair. And I say it was a rebuke on Jesus' part because in each case, what's amazing if you read the stories, and we'll get to them as we go throughout the Gospel of Matthew, is in each case Jesus is right there. He's right there in the boat as the storm is raging. He's right beside them on the road. And and instead of turning to Him in their need and anchoring their hope, putting their hope in His power and His love, they let the difficulty of their circumstances overwhelm them and they become afraid. And that's what the Bible means when it talks about unbelief. A little faith. See that? A little faith. Unbelief is, is seeing Jesus with peripheral vision. It's having a low opinion of Him in reference to the circumstances of our lives, in the case of the disciples in the boat, take that as an example, the winds begin to blow, right? And the, the waves crash against the side of the boat, and Jesus is there asleep. But, but again, he's peripheral. He's marginal. He really matters very little. He, What defines their reality is the power of the storm. They're afraid when they shouldn't be, because, I mean, who's in the boat? I mean, who's in the boat? The one who rides on the wind is in the boat. The one who walks on water. He's right there. And yet they're afraid because he's not figuring into their calculations at all. The reality of the storm is so filling their imagination that Jesus is peripheral. They're driven emotionally by the reality of the power of the storm they're facing, more so than the reality of the power of of the one who is with them, who with one word can stand and say peace, and the wind and the waves will go silent. That's unbelief. That's a little faith. And in this passage, Jesus says to us, as as we confront these things in ourselves, if you live anxious about how to pay the bills and provide for your family, then you're doing the same thing. You're seeing the Father with peripheral vision. You're acting as if his power and his love for you matter very little. Your emotional reality is being driven by the reality of your need rather than by what G- Eugene Peterson says so wonderfully, God reality, God initiative, God provision. I mean, in other words, if you're anxious, then, then God is not factoring into your calculations at all. Uh, we, have a, we, we have a friend in Lakeland, his name's is Tim Strawbridge, and his way of illustrating this is so great. I think he says, you know, and he's a really big guy, 6'10", like 360-something pounds or whatever, and he'll say, you know, oftentimes he'll go to people and say, you know, here's what it feels like uh, to be around you, what it feels like your assessment of your life is, you know, whatever. It's just, oh, I've got this gigantic, I mean, whatever it is, it's just this gigantic thing that I can I can hardly make sense of, and I'm so nervous about it, and it's, you know, whether it's a bill or whatever. Oh, it's just this big, big, gigantic thing. There's this little bitty Jesus, the little bitty Jesus is right here. You know? And Jesus says if you live that way, it's no different from paganism. I mean, it's no different than living like somebody who doesn't know God and doesn't know how he works. It's practical atheism. You've got this gigantic thing on the horizon of your life, and, and yet there's this just little, this little, little, itty-bitty Jesus that's in the middle, and really he's powerless against what you're facing. And so if we're anxious, what he's wanting us to see is that we're seeing the Father with peripheral vision. Anxiety, in other words, is a red flag that you're not just making little of God. Here's what Jesus wants us to see. It's not just that we're making little of him, it's that we've been replacing him. Jesus says if you're anxious, it's because money and material possessions have taken title to our heart to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation and loyalty. In other words, money's become your idol. This is what he talked about last week. It's become the thing you've put your confidence in, the thing you're relying on to give you an identity and to make you safe. It's become your god. The one thing you know you can't live without, the thing you have to have, and you're relying on it. And the reason you're anxious is that, for some reason, it's being threatened. I mean, your anxiety helps you gauge to what degree you've put your hope in money instead of in God. And, for example, if your joy is tracked with the stock market over the past 18 months as it's gone down, 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 it's a sure sign that you're hoping in wealth and not hoping in God to save you because God has not changed. You hear that? If you put your hope in him, if you put your hope in him, then different circumstances don't create anxiety. Because the circumstances might change, but he doesn't. A couple of stories from my own life and how this has worked itself out. And you, these are they're kind of funny, but they're tragic at the same time. Well, the first one's funny, the second one's not. But um, I remember a time in thinking through kind of how this happens to me. I, I remember... A time, Jonathan and Jamie were actually missionaries in Wales for about a year. And we decided to take a family trip. And we only had two at the time, Canaan and Isaac. And um, and we had this great idea of on the way out of the country, after being with them for a couple of weeks, we were going to spend a couple of days in um, London. And so I, I hopped on the train from Wales to London with Ellie and Canaan, who I don't know how maybe were, four years old at the time. And when I got to Paddington Station, I reached inside of my um, coat pocket to pull out my little man purse that I was carrying that had all four of our passports, all of our money and our credit cards, and it was gone. Um, I contend it was stolen. Jamie and Ashley said I lost them. Either way, I freaked. I mean, I freaked. Um, and so here we were in downtown London with no money, I think Ashley had one credit card that was available. Uh, we, you know, we no plane tickets. Our passports were gone. We ran to the embassy. and What happened was we ended up staying there two or three uh, extra nights, or it felt like that anyway. But I know I didn't sleep and I didn't eat for about four days. And, and it was right at the time where the dollar was next to the pound. So literally we were paying like $350 a night for a hotel room. Um, and we had to stay, you know, so it was costing us almost like, it felt like $2,000 a day to stay in London. And here we're poor starving missionaries trying to make this thing work. And I, I literally, I literally lost control. I mean, I, and there's so many stories that came out of that. I just, what that, you know, the anxiety that built up in me because of my, how my, you know, my love of money was being threatened. And I remember another time when we didn't have any money and, um, we found out we were pregnant with, with Abby. And then a couple weeks later, because of fault of my own, I got word that our health insurance had lapsed. Um, and I remember, I freaked. And rightly so, right? Uh, and we ended up having to have her on Medicaid and, and God provided in ways that we can't possibly imagine. But I just, I just began to think back in all the times in my life where I've been exposed in this for all of the ways that my strategies, I'm very good at figuring out how to keep myself safe. And a lot of times they really do involve money as a strategy for how to do that. And then the times when life comes crashing in and begins to rip my strategies apart, I remember it just feels like your life is coming to an end. And I literally didn't sleep. I didn't eat didn't pray. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul says to the church, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so Paul, Paul says two things about money in that, in that verse. He says first, that there's something about money, we set our hope on it. And that ultimately, number two, it's uncertain. He says, charge those who are rich to not set their hope on their riches money can make you feel safe that's what he's saying it can give you social currency jesus cast money remember as and capital m is a rival god that we that there's something about it that our hearts just go out to it and we we easily make it a god but ultimately paul says there in first timothy six is money can't save you money will let you down eventually there will come some kind of life circumstances that will prove money completely powerless You see, they give you a feeling of being safe. But ultimately, money and material possessions fail to come through on what they promise. And that's where the anxiety comes from. It's it's a result of your money idol disappointing you. Paul says if you give your heart to it, it's going to be a hard road for you because it's uncertain and there's going to be a lot of anxiety. And your anxiety just reveals to the degree to which you have really given your heart to it and allow it to control you emotionally. And so Jesus says... We've got to deal with this, and we've got to seek first the kingdom instead. And so we have to ask the question then, how do we come to be rid of our anxiety and to overcome it? And last week we said there are two steps, really, that we have to repent first and then rejoice. And that's really what Jesus helps us do in this passage. And so I just want to take the rest of our time, and I want us to follow the argument Jesus is making as he reasons with us out of Matthew 6 here. And so we're just going to take five minutes and just walk through it statement by statement so you can see how Jesus is really trying to reason with us. Okay, so begin in verse 25 with me. And there in verse 25, Jesus starts by making the statement where he says, at the very end of that verse, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus says there has to be something more. I sat with a guy this week uh, who by every worldly standard has everything. He lives in a very nice neighborhood and drives very nice cars and lives in an amazing house and is very successful in his business and is a member of Augusta and travels all over the world and does everything that you can possibly imagine and most of us dream about doing. And he just looked me in the eye and he said, I'm bored to death. And I just thought, wow, I mean, you know, we are. We're made for more. We're made to join God in the great adventure of entering into the kingdom of heaven and to take our time and our talents and our treasures and not to use them selfishly for me, but to generously give them away for the sake of others, to seek first the kingdom, that's the life we've been made for, and what Jesus says is anything else other than that is just small. I mean, to play it safe, and to spend your money on yourself, and to never risk, and to never go without, and to never put yourself in a place where you have to depend upon God to provide for you, it will contract your soul. And Eugene Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, I think, is great. He says, relax. Don't be preoccupied with Getting steep your life in god reality he says god initiative god provision don't worry about missing out give your entire attention to what god is doing now his point is that you can really live that way if your heart can get free of the love of money because god promises to meet your needs there has to be something more and you really can live there because god promises to meet your needs and then he gives two illustrations to support his argument so keep going with me verse 26 he says look at the birds of the air They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Now, one of the things that really impoverishes our view of God is that we think of Him as standing apart and not intimately involved in the details of our lives. But Jesus says He's near, He's attentive, He's intimately involved in every detail. He feeds birds. Isn't that great? God feeds birds. And the result is they don't don't sow and reap and store up provisions. They don't have... The same life, this is why Jesus uses them as an illustration. They don't have the same life strategies we do. They don't sow and reap and store up. They're, and this, this just, they're careless in God's care, the message says. And then he uses a second illustration. He says, consider the lilies of the field, verses 28 and 29. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And Jesus' point here is God's generosity with the birds it was God's closeness, his nearness. Here it's his generosity. He says God proves himself to be lavish and abundantly generous in the way he's clothed the lilies of the field, and they're they're temporary. They're alive one day and gone the next. But can you just can you think? I mean think. Think about the, the flowers that are on the side of the road, especially if you drive in places like North Carolina. I mean, there's so much creativity. There's so many colors and shapes, so much intric- intricate beauty, such care, such generosity. And, and Jesus is saying, Th- just think about that. And the accusation that Satan made against God in the garden was that he was holding out on Adam and Eve, right? But Jesus' point is just the opposite. God's not holding out. God's not a miser. He's incredibly generous. You don't have to look any further than the flowers that grow on the side of the road. They don't toil. That word literally means they don't grow weary. They don't wear themselves out with work. They don't spin, he says. And really what most people think is that man's work is the toil, and in this day woman's work was the spinning. And so either whether you're a man or a woman, that he's saying they don't they don't produce, they receive, they don't achieve these things. God provides for them. They're passive. And yet, God, it shows abundant generosity to them. And now, follow Jesus' argument. He says, if God is so near that he feeds the birds, and if he's so generous that he richly clothes the flowers, then he will be near to you in your need, and he'll be generous to you when you need him, because, verse 26, you're far more valuable to him than birds or flowers. He's your father. You're his children. Do you really think God would feed the birds and not feed you? Do you really think Jesus is saying that he would be generous to clothe the flowers and not meet your needs again? Again, do you see the core? The core of our anxiety is unbelief. We believe, but we don't believe in his love and generosity. We believe, but we don't believe that he provides for us. And what we need, Jesus is saying, what, what, what he's trying to help us with is we need a greater faith. We need a greater understanding in how much God loves us. We need to look at him and see everything else with peripheral vision. And to do that, we have to meditate on the gospel because it's at the cross where we really see God's nearness and his generosity. You see? The gospel reveals God's nearness because the gospel teaches us that God came near to us in Jesus Christ. He's not far off. He's not out there in the universe, uninterested in what's happening in your life. He's not unaware or unconcerned about your circumstances. He's not too busy to pay attention to you. He's come near to you. In Jesus Christ, God put on flesh and blood, and he came into the world. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And the Gospel also reveals his generosity. What we learn in the gospel is that the Father was willing to part with his greatest treasure, his Son, in order to gain us. And so the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, which is a passage that you probably are familiar with, but he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And if he did not spare his own Son, but he gave up his Son for us all, won't he also with him graciously give us all things? I mean, you see what Paul's saying? He's saying there's nothing in all the world that the Father in heaven loved more than his Son, and yet he willingly gave up his Son so he could have us. And if he would do that, if he would part with that treasure, there's nothing that we can we can ask him for that he won't give to us. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, our Savior cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the transaction that happened on the cross, the father turned his face away from his son so that he could turn his face to us this morning and say, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And so the writer of the Hebrews meditating on this says, keep your life free of the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Isn't that great? You see that? He says... Until you get there, until you can confidently say, he's for me, he'll never leave me, I will not fear, you'll keep using money to try to provide for yourself, to try to protect yourself and to try to deal with your fear. Until you can rest in God's love for you in Jesus Christ and live as the birds do, careless in his care, you'll be full of anxiety. And in your anxiety, you'll never seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We need a greater faith. We need a deeper understanding of the gospel. So two points of application as we come to a close this morning, and they're just this first, as you wrestle through what it means for you to use your money faithfully. I remember just just a just a way of thinking about that. I, I just would say the gospel is our model. I remember being in a chapel service in, at RTS in 1997, and there was this dorky guy that looked like he was straight up out of the 1950s up at the front with big glasses and, an, and a gray suit that just was. Horrible, And I said, who in the world is that guy? And he introduced himself as John Piper. And I remember in that that lecture he gave, he said, here's the reality of the gospel. The movement of the gospel is always the gospel moves away from comfort and toward need. But the move of the American culture, the drift that happens in America is we move away from need toward comfort. So the gospel, in all the conversations we're having about money and material possessions, the gospel has to be our model. And the gospel says consider Jesus who was rich, and yet, even though he was rich, he willingly became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. If you think of the the, the riches that were his, and and the generosity he showed, and the poverty that became his, and the move of the gospel that moved Jesus from wealth and riches and glory to becoming nothing and to living in poverty, if you think about that move, I mean, no matter how much you do, you can never even come close to that. But if the gospel is our model, we have to begin to figure out how to live the reality of the move of the gospel toward us as we move out toward other people. And to do that, to do that, to really even become, get close to that kind of faithfulness, we're going to have to put into place all kinds of spiritual practices. So Jesus says, look at the birds, consider the lilies, put your mind on how God has been faithful to you. It's so easy to let the struggles and the worries of our life center our world. That our needs and our wants become the pole star around which we take our bearings, and Jesus is calling us to something entirely different. He says that our imagination has has to become thoroughly God dominated. His nearness, His power, His generosity, His love for us have to become our reality. He has to be really, really big. He has to really matter, and everything else has to matter very little. We have to we have to set our gaze on Him, and see everything else with peripheral vision. So you do that. How do you do that? You do that by reading and meditating and praying the scriptures daily by being in worship week after week, listening as we read the scriptures to one another and sing hymns to one another and try to put our words to faith. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together by plugging into a community group that's trying to wrestle with these issues, to preach the gospel to one another. I mean, these are the means by which you really begin to understand, by which you really begin to see Him. That's how it works. That's how it works. And that's what we need We need him to break through all of our hard-heartedness, all of our unbelief and all of our idolatry and to make himself known. And so would you pray with me this morning that he would do just that? Um, And actually, as we pray, I want you to look at the prayer items down at the bottom of your outline. And I'm just going to lead you in a time of quiet meditation for a couple minutes while Terry comes to lead us in a song. So let's pray together. And I want you to pray by worshiping the Lord. Begin by worshiping the Lord. Let me ask a couple of questions as you meditate. How have you sensed God's nearness this week? And how have you experienced his generosity this week? Would you just begin to think through those things and pray? Oh God, you are so great to us. You're so good. You're so generous. We thank you. Now let me ask you, where where are you anxious? Where are you full of fear? Can you confess that unbelief this morning and repent just in the quietness of your heart? Can you begin the process of confession and repentance? Forgive us, Father, that we think so little of you. And then finally, can we rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Rejoice in Jesus In the gospel we learn that the father was willing to part with his greatest treasure in order to gain us and therefore We can confidently say the lord is with me. Jesus. Thank you that on the cross As you died for the sins of the world And in your horror and in your terror you cried out my god my god, why have you forsaken me that the truth of that Of that moment the truth of that statement that came from your lips for our lives is that The father turned away from you and he did so that he might turn towards us and say I'll never leave you I'll never forsake you. Would you grant us this morning that we might really come to believe that? That I might deal with our anxiety and our fear so that we might, in a way that is faithful, seek first your kingdom and its righteousness and give you glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one, one announcement to make you aware of. If you're um, men, for just a minute, I hope you pay attention to the back of your worship folder. This next Saturday, we're going to start something that we'd like to do on a regular basis, and that's that the men of the church meet for coffee on Saturday morning at Bean and Grape. Bean and Grape's is going to let us have the run of the place uh, for about an hour on Saturday. So next Saturday morning, we're going to be there from 745 to 9. Please come and join us. And also, if you're at all interested, we're trying to put together a men's retreat for the spring for in the next couple of months Tony Elswick's going to be in the back with a sign up sheet this morning if you could if you're interested in that at all please find your way to Tony back there uh, to help us with that um, and be aware of those things because we we really we we really believe that God's called us to raise up men uh, to be the leaders in their homes and the leaders in our community so we're trying to put some feet to that now if you're like me and you you read the words of that song we just sang and you and you're just you're grasping for the faith to really be able to to put uh, those thoughts to words, to really say and to mean it, you're more than enough. Or if you're like me and you just feel like man in many ways, I'm just not there yet. Here's the promise of the benediction, that that he really is for you. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have no other, uh, other real, no other option than to stare him in the face uh, as I raise my hands over you to declare God's love and his favor and his blessing to go with you. Again, because he turned away from Jesus, he turns towards you. And man, if you put your heart in that, if you give your heart to the Father and his love for you, uh, then you'll find that he is enough. And so receive the benediction this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.